Well, amen. Worship team, if I could just thank you uh, as you're scattered abroad. Thank you for leading us so well. I feel like, yeah, I, I could go home right now. I feel ministered to. I'm really thankful for you. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 22. Luke 22. Everything thus far has just been so coherent. As I was listening to the songs and the prayers and the scripture readings, I'm just, I appreciate that I could tell there's a lot of thoughtfulness going into bringing this all together. And uh, as we open, I, I would just put forward this morning that unless your name is Jesus, you are inclined to think far too highly of yourself. Every one of us. But interestingly, and this mystery is that I would also just say to you this morning that you are inclined to far to think far too lowly of yourself this morning as well. And Jesus is going to bring our attention to this mysterious reality in our passage today. As you're turning there, just very quickly, if I can remind you of the context, this flows out of what we were discussing last week. Um, and so as you're hearing the text read, you can just picture in your mind that Jesus is reclining at a table. So it's not like our table where he's sitting on a chair. No, they're reclining on the, on the ground. It's a low table, probably with, on a cushion. And, and they've just finished sharing the Passover meal. We discussed that. Jesus has just introduced the Lord's Supper. He just took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He just took the cup and said, this cup is, is my blood, which is poured out for you. He's just looked around the table and he's just said, one of you whose hands are on the table right now is going to betray me. And then immediately flowing right out of that, we have this conversation. That Jesus, So imagine Jesus is reclining and now, now his ear perks up and he hears this conversation that we're about to read. Luke 22, reading from verse 24 to the end of verse 30. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. So again, reclining. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. The leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one who who reclines at table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As, as we think through this passage and, and listen through this passage, we're inclined to think it ends at verse 27. So if you look down at your Bible, you know, it comes, he's, they're talking about greatness. He's just talked about how his body's going to be broken for them. His blood's going to be shed. And then he, he leans over and listens. And they're arguing about who is the greatest. And instinctively, I'll tell you what I want Jesus to say. I want Jesus to lean over and say, you knuckleheads, how dare you? How dare you talk about who's the greatest? You're, you're sinners. You're, you're worms. You, you've missed it entirely. Quit talking about greatness. That's what I want him to say. But what does he go on to say? 
He says, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. So you're going to sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That seems like the wrong approach for men who are struggling with lofty visions of greatness. Jesus doesn't take those, those ambitions and squash them and say, shame on you for having ambitions. He doesn't do that. What he does is he takes this greatness that they're longing for and he recasts it and redefines it and repositions it. Which is why I said at the beginning that, you know, here in this room, each of us, we're inclined to think far too highly of ourselves. And yet we're also inclined to think far too lowly of ourselves. Jesus says, you're thinking about greatness all wrong. You've, you've missed it. And actually, this greatness that you are longing for. So here, you know, we, I set the context. I said, you know, they're leaning at the table. But let's set a larger context. Let's scroll back in the story all the way to Genesis. And you go back to the very beginning of the story. And do you remember what God says about us? Some of us have every verse memorized that, that says that we're wretched sinners and every verse memorized that says that we're worms and those are in the Bible. But, but we've failed to remember the verse that says that we're made in the image of God. That actually God made us and his intention for us was that we would be under him but over everything else. That we would rule and reign on his behalf as, as his vice regents exercising dominion over the earth. And inside of us, we have a longing for what we were made for. You know, we've talked about how we have this longing to create, this longing to cultivate. We see this in our kids building Lego and our teenagers on Minecraft and our wives in the garden, maybe the husbands in the garden, and the man in the workshop or the woman in the workshop getting into trouble here. We see this, this longing to create and cultivate, this, long, this ambition and Jesus doesn't come and take their ambition and say, shame on you, you worms. You're going you're gonna to wash feet for eternity. That's not what he does. He, he lifts their eyes off the world. He fixes their eyes on him. And then what he does is he, is he lifts their eyes above this kingdom that's passing away and fixes their eyes on that kingdom and says, you're thinking about this all wrong. And they're going to see as they walk through the next day and a half, they're, well, three days. They're going to see this trajectory. He's preparing them to, to reign and rule in this coming kingdom. And before they can take that lofty seat, before they can step into that lofty um, purpose, they need to be brought down. Before they can be given that authority, they need to be humbled. You know, and I wish that we could follow that pattern here in this world. You know, a, a person is not truly useful. A person can't truly be trusted with those positions of authority until they've been, been brought low, until they've bowed the knee to our great God, until they've humbled themselves to serve the least of these. That's when a person is ready, when they resemble Jesus. And so Jesus takes this longing for greatness and he, and he reorients it and he recasts it and he prepares them for what's coming. And actually, as you read through the New Testament, you see this all the time. In the Beatitudes, for example, you know, remember Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. But what does he go on to say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So poor in spirit now, kingdom of heaven then. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The author of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the great example of this. He tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. But he's not on the cross now. 
He's not in shame now. He's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? So Jesus suffered and Jesus was shamed and Jesus washed feet. But in heaven, Jesus is not suffering. Jesus is not shamed. Jesus is not washing feet. He is reigning on his throne. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And the, the testimony of the New Testament says that's the pattern. Down, then up. Down, then up. Suffering, service, lowliness now in anticipation of exaltation and reigning then. Jesus says to the disciples, there are 12 thrones for you. You will be reigning. But you've got some things to learn first. 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul tells us there was legal disputes going on in the church and they're quarreling and fighting and they're going to bring it out into the world for a court case. And he says, is there not anyone among you who has the wisdom to solve this case? And he says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Don't you see that? If you see that, it should change the way that you live here. Romans 8 says um, that we've got the Spirit of God. He bears witness that... Uh, we are children of God. And if children, then what? Then heirs. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. Then he goes on to say, provided we suffer with him down in order that we may also be glorified with him. Up, down, then up. Down, then up. That's the Lent-shaped life. That's the life of the Christian. Serving and suffering now. Reigning as heirs then. So here in this passage, Jesus takes his disciples and they're talking about greatness. They've got this ambition. And rather than just squashing all ambition, he shows them what godly ambition looks like. Rather than squashing this longing for greatness, he shows them what true greatness looks like. And it's a greatness in the kingdom of God, not in this kingdom that's passing away. So we're going to ask a simple question, how to be great in the kingdom of God. And we're just going to pull out three very simple to understand lessons from this passage that are Simple to understand, but terribly difficult to live out. You need this help. First, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, don't follow the examples of the world. So Jesus here, he, he, he hears them talking about greatness, and so then he, he's like, okay, let's talk about greatness. And he draws their attention to the examples that they see around them in the world. So he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called the benefactors. So, so here in this world, those who are in authority, they lord it over those under their charge. They, they use people. They, they set themselves up over people. That's, just, that's the way that leadership works in the world. You've seen this, Jesus says, right? And I'm, if you were in this room, he would look at it all of you. He'd say, you've seen this, right? You, you know that this is how leadership works in the world. And then he says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest. The leader as the one who serves. Now, in the culture in which Jesus was speaking, the young were understood to be uh, less than. And the young were expected to have a posture of humility, to defer. So if you were in a room and there were a bunch of people bringing their opinions, if you're a young person, you're going to be quiet and you're going to let those who are seasoned, those who are experienced, you're going to let them share their thoughts and you're going to defer and wait until your time. It's exactly the opposite in our world today, but that's, that's how it was. And Jesus says, that should be your posture towards everyone. You should see yourself as, as someone who is deferring, someone who is, is lifting others up, seeing them as higher than yourself. Sarah read uh, earlier, and I'll just point back to you, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. I'm just going to read verse 3. It says, 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Think about that. You in your life, this past week, think about your marriage, think about, or, or your workplace perhaps. Count others as more significant than yourselves. How do we do with that? Now, if you're a Christian in this room, you've heard this before. You've heard this a hundred times. You know, you know this. It's easy to understand. It's terribly difficult to live out, isn't it? Seemingly impossible. And particularly in our culture, we do live in a culture where, where this is like heresy. Counting others is more significant than myself. Are you kidding me? That, that is not what our culture is saying. Our culture is saying you, you, self-care, man. Like you, you look after you, look after you, right? It's about you. Don't let anybody step over you. Don't let anybody walk over you. You, you got to assert your rights. You got to get what's yours. It's about you. And they're coaching us. And I can, I can get books about that. I, can, I could have a, a counselor sharing that with me and point me back to this truth. But here's the thing. It's easy to think about myself. I don't need a coach to tell me that. I've never once rolled out of bed and thought, oh, man, somebody tell me, like, here's what you need to keep first and foremost in your mind today. What does Levi want? Let that, be the, let that just be the, the driving thought today. You can do this. You can do this. What does Levi want? I roll out of bed thinking that without any coaching. And then I go to work thinking that. And then I interact with all of you thinking that. And I go into the drive-thru and somebody in front of me is slow and I'm thinking this. Right? This is, this is my whole life. I'm driving. Somebody's too slow in front of me as I'm driving. I'm thinking this. Somebody cuts me off. I'm thinking this. What does Levi want? That is the, that's the voice in my head. Count others more significant than yourselves. That's a foreign voice. That's a voice that, that I need the Spirit of God to be preaching to my heart day by day. And Jesus says, that's, that's what you need. He says, those who are great in the world... Like, who's greater, Jesus says? Is it the one who is serving, or is it the one who's seated at the table? It's not a trick question. Jesus goes on, it's the one who's seated. Of course, if you go to a fancy restaurant, and then there's like this table set up in the center of the thing, and everybody's like kind of taking photos of this person at the photo. My wife, one time, uh, she was a server, and Rachel McAdams, if you know who she is, was at the restaurant. She was so excited. This movie star was there. Who's greater, the one who's seated at the table, or all the people with the aprons serving? Jesus says, obviously, it's... It's the one who's seated at the table. That's what you know. You, you know that. And then Jesus says, but look at me. Because I'm here serving. In John's gospel, he tells us that just before this episode, Jesus had, before he, he shared the supper, he had tied a towel around himself. He had stooped down and he had washed the disciples' feet. Including, by the way, including Judas's feet. Knowing full well that Judas, the mud on his feet, he had accumulated that mud, walking over and making a deal to betray Jesus, and Jesus stoops down and he washes those feet. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Well, that is not natural. And the world says, nice guys finish last. Nice guys finish last. And that's often true, isn't it? Seemingly, because the world thinks that the grave is the finish line. And if the grave is the finish line, then nice guys often do finish last. If the grave is the finish line, then boy, you would be a fool to listen to Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul talked about that. He's like, if there's no resurrection, then we of all people are most to be pitied. We who are like following Jesus, listening to Jesus, living this life. If, if this is all a sham, if the grave is the finish line, then woe to us Christians. What a waste of our lives. If the grave is the finish line, you should climb over whoever you need to climb over to get what's yours. Look after that family. Make them comfortable. Look after the next generation and the generation following, right? Lord over people, use people, whatever you need to do. That is the story of our history books, isn't it? That's, that's Darwin's story. It's the dog eat dog. It's the survival of the fittest. If the grave is the finish line, it's the only story that makes sense. You can draw in social contracts or whatever, however we justify our morals in that world. But at the end of the day, social contract aside, I need to make sure that I got what I need and my family's got what they need. Because if the grave is the finish line, there's only one way to live. But the grave's not the finish line. And, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look out at the world. They're living for this, this kingdom here. But you need to lift your eyes because you're living for this kingdom here. And that changes everything. So why, Jesus is saying, why would you follow the example of someone who doesn't believe in that kingdom? Why are you going to follow the example of someone who believes that the grave is the finish line? Why are you reading his books? Why are you watching her show? That person who's trying to accumulate their best life now, why on earth would you follow that example? Jesus says, eyes up, watch me. One pastor notes, never follow a man or a woman who chases his own name. Never follow a man who chases his own belly. Never follow a man who lives for himself. Christ did not live that way. Christ made himself a servant. So if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, if you want to prepare for, for that, that which matters, then don't follow the examples of the world. You got to wean yourself off of that. That's the first lesson Jesus teaches us here. Second, flowing right out of it, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, don't settle for lesser rewards. Now, rewards are an idea that gets a bad rap. Some of us don't even like, we bristle at the word reward. I don't do things for reward, you say. I do things because I love God. Well, that's good. You should. That should be your primary motivation, your love for God. Absolutely. And yet, can rewards be a motivator? Are we too holy for rewards? Jesus is not too holy for rewards. He references rewards frequently. So, for example, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Well, that doesn't feel very blessed, Jesus. That actually feels really terrible. But he goes on to say, Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. You can live this seemingly impossible reality out because there's a reward for you waiting in heaven. See, life is long and obedience is hard. Therefore, God gives us a glimpse of our coming reward to encourage us in our walk with him. He knows we're weak. He knows we need these things, which is why in this passage, as he sees the disciples talking about greatness, what does Jesus do? He tells them, hey, if you want to be great, it's going to be a, a tough walk. You're not going to be the one reclining at the table, having everybody wait on you. You're not going to be the one lording over people. You're not going to be one in the positions of prestige. But there are thrones waiting for you. There is a kingdom prepared for you. If you're going to sit at that table. You're going to sit with me. Well, that means you're going to live differently here. Don't settle for lesser rewards. Listen, the world's got rewards to offer. 
Oh, the world is offering us rewards everywhere we look. Click here and we will give you sexual gratification. Spend here and you will be admired by all of your peers. Travel here and you will be fulfilled. Follow these steps. Buy this book. You will have success. Rewards are being promised left, right, and center. Are you too holy for rewards? Listen, the world is using rewards, and Jesus, is, Jesus here is, is redeeming rewards. He's saying all those rewards are lesser. You follow me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what, what treasure are you living for? What, what reward are you after? What is this greatness that you, you feel, this godly ambition, this ambition you feel inside of you, where is it leading you? What is it wanting to seize hold of? What does greatness look like? Now, it feels like this is like some ambiguous hypothetical question. It's a question that we wrestle with all the time. Every time you set a goal in your life, you're asking the question about what is greatness. Uh, you know, on the first of every year, we're making resolutions and we're saying, well, I want to I be more disciplined with my eating or I want to I exercise more or I want to read that book or I want to, why? Well, because you're pursuing a goal, right? You've, there's something, there's some target that you're aiming for. See, we ask these questions all the time. Maybe we don't follow it to a logical conclusion, but what, what is this greatness? What's the bar? What's the standard that we're shooting for? It's an important question. Where is your treasure? It's going to dictate how you use your time. It's going to dictate what you do with your money. It's going to dictate the way that you live your life. And so, you know, wealth comes immediately to mind, the rich young ruler. He's, he won't let these things go to follow Jesus. Jesus says, well, sell all you have and follow me. And he walks away sad. because, like, well, this is, my, this is my treasure. This is my greatness. This is what I want. But it's not just treasure. You know, in the context of our discussion here, I think the Pharisees pre- present us with an interesting example to consider. They were, they were storing up treasure. They were seeking rewards here on earth. And, and it was in the form of counterfeit greatness. Can I tell you, a lot of us, and I'd say a lot in our culture are living for counterfeit greatness. I just want to, I want to impress the world. I want to impress my peers. I want to have that successful business. I want to have that perfect marriage. I want people to see me nailing it. I want, and that will, that's greatness. That will satisfy me. It won't, but that's what I want. And the Pharisees, they used their religion. They like weaponized it to try and get this counterfeit greatness. So Jesus rebukes them for their, their long-winded prayers, their self-righteous sermons. He says, they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. It's like that's, that's what they're after. They're not thinking about this kingdom over there. They're pretending to think about that kingdom over there, but they're thinking about this kingdom right here. And boy, sometimes we've been guilty of that, haven't we? It's hard to put your finger on it. I can't just give you an example. Not every long prayer is like that. Some long prayers are beautiful. And some short prayers are for this kingdom. But we, we know in our hearts when we're doing it, right? When we're performing to impress. When I'm praying not to him, but to you. I'm preaching not in obedience to him, but out of adoration from all of you. When, when we're living our life, when we're rolling out our righteousness for people to see it. He says in um, Matthew 6, Jesus warns, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
For then, here's that reward language again, for then you will have no reward from your fathers in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. It's a lesser reward. They were living their life. Their idea of greatness is to impress everybody else in the room. And they did it. Mission accomplished. Everybody in the room thought, wow, that's a really righteous guy. And for five minutes, they had the reward of everybody thinking, wow, look at you. And then on the sixth minute, everybody has forgotten. And there's no reward in heaven. You've received it. It's a lesser reward. But don't live like that. Instead, stop trying to impress people. Stop trying to draw attention. Stop trying to lord over people and live your life for the only audience that matters. Live for him. And stop seeking praise from other people. Because there is a reward coming. And it's better than anything that this world has to offer. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The day is coming when everything is going to get flipped upside down. So, so quit jockeying for position in this kingdom that's passing away. There is a day coming when people who are, who are absolutely disregarded and written off in this world are going to be elevated to their position of glory. That little, that little boy with Down syndrome. That believer who can't pay her rent, just battling cancer. That person with that, the low intelligence, just, just a low IQ, who never impresses anybody with their prayers. Never impresses anybody with their house, their stuff. Those, those people who are just faithful in the background. This sweet Emma Morrison's of the world. Prayer warrior in her prayer closet. And God has seized every bit of that. And the, the, the day is coming when all that's going to be flipped upside down. And the first, those people who you thought, oh, that's the guy. Oh, that's the girl. Oh, look at them. Look at, look at how amazing they are. Look at, the, look at the house. Look at the prestige. Look at, look at the eloquence of speech. Look, they always have the right answer. They're so amazing. Look at the family. It's, it's perfect. They're the best. But for all of those people, if they're living to try and impress you, all of their reward, they just got it. Okay, well, now that's done. And this kingdom's over. But now we're in the forever eternal kingdom. And in that kingdom, everything just gets flipped. And that's why Jesus can say, blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. It's going to be flipped upside down. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then, don't follow the example of the world. Don't settle for lesser rewards. Third and finally, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, this is simple. Here's so that lots of don'ts, lots of don'ts. Here's your one do. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, Fix your eyes on Jesus and follow his lead. Follow him. Follow people who resemble him. You know, the Apostle Paul could shamelessly say, follow me as I follow Christ. You know, going back to what that pastor said earlier, 
Don't follow the person who's trying to make a big name for themselves. Don't follow the person who's living to fill their belly. Don't follow the person who's all about their own comforts. So you follow Jesus, and you follow people who point you to Jesus. And that's the trajectory. For who is the greater, Jesus asks, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But look at me. I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is essentially just saying, real simple, you want a little takeaway? You want to be great? You want to be ready for that day? Eyes up, off the world. Lock them on me. That's it. Stop fixating on the world. Look at me. Practically speaking, for each of us, you got to think about how am I fixating my eyes on the world? Maybe that means get off of YouTube all the time. Like, what do you, just get out of there. Or stop watching that, that drivel on the TV. What are you watching that for? Stop reading those books. Stop listening to that podcast. Stop following that thing. Get out of that group of friends. Bad company corrupts good morals. Like, get, Stop following the example of the world, whatever that looks like for you, and get your eyes on me. Open the word of God. Ask me today, speak, oh Lord, I need to hear from you. I am about to go back into that world and I'm going to hear from the world all day long. Could you please just give me something and by the power of your spirit, press it deep into my heart and put it on repeat in my brain and just get me in, open my eyes to see you. You just get out into nature and say, God, as I look out at creation, would you just use it to direct my attention to you? See him, fix your eyes on him, follow his lead. If anyone deserved to to sit down at the table, to to recline and be served, it was Jesus. That's not the example that he set. Now his disciples knew that Jesus was the greatest. They knew that, like they knew, Jesus is, he's greatness personified. He is greatness. And yet he says, look, I'm not reclining at table. I was just washed your feet. So let's, let's shift this conversation a little bit, shouldn't we? Let's shift our perspective a little bit. Hmm? And of course, he would go on to show them. He's shown them thus far in their, their time with him, but he's about to show them what this looks like to the, to the fullest extent. You know, they've, they've been walking with Jesus. Now they know that Jesus, he, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of heaven and earth, he condescended down, clothed himself in our humanity, he took his power and he, he robed himself in our weakness and our frailty. He was born. The creator of heaven and earth entered into a womb. He was, he was born. He, he was cold. He, he was hungry. He was tired. He was exhausted. He was taken advantage of. He went through, he went through all, of, all of that for us. He sat down and ate with the people who had been rejected by the world. He laid his hands on people. And prayed for them. People who were unclean. People who were contagious. People who could make him sick just by being with them. And he lays his hands on them. He loved those people who were unlovable. He forgave those people who were unforgivable. You know, some of us are here today and we've got, we've got wrestles. You know, you got wrestles in your marriage. You got wrestles in your relationships with people. How do I forgive? How do I move past this? It's just, it's constant. It never ends. You look at Jesus. The one who, who served us even as we rejected him. The one who claimed us as, as, as his own, even though we denied him. The one who washed our filthy feet, even the feet of G- Judas, which I would suggest points forward to the fact that with his blood on the cross, he, he cleansed each and every one of us 
We all have a little bit of Judas in us, traitors to God, enemies to God, rebels to God, and yet he picked us up and he washed us off and he made us sons and daughters. The cross was the most profound display of greatness. And that's, that's the paradigm shift, isn't it? As a Christian, you know, I'm preaching behind this, this cross. And this is foolishness to the world. It's, it's foolishness. The Apostle Paul said that. It's just, it doesn't, this is the most ridiculous. If, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the most ridiculous thing that we're celebrating the death of this man 2,000 years ago. This shameful, embarrassing, disgusting death that he died on the cross. And yet to those who are being saved, it's life. It's the most beautiful thing imaginable. The king came down from his throne willingly. And he chose to die naked in our place for our rebellion against him. He died so that we could live. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. He descended to the depths so that we could ascend to heaven. I am the good shepherd, he says. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's greatness. I was trying to track down this quote this morning. I don't know where I heard it, and I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet. But I heard this quote. He said, um, the great dilemma of the Bible, the great dilemma of humanity, is how can God bless a man, how can God bless a woman, without ruining them? How, does, how, how could he exalt us to this place? without ruining us. Our world, we've got our own little um, sayings, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. To, to lift somebody up and put them in that place, who of us is ready for that? Who of us, you know, we look at leaders and we say, you know, look at them, shame on them, look at the way they fall short. But if any of us was put in this position of leadership, if any of us was put on the throne, how does God bless a person without ruining them? Well, first, the testimony of Scripture seems to suggest first he needs to break them. First he breaks us. Because we think far too highly of ourselves. You are not as smart as you think you are. You are not as, as benevolent, as, as good as you think you are. Not as kind as you think you are. Not as selfless as you think you are. You're a sinner who needs a Savior. And until you see that, well, you're not ready to sit on a throne. Are you kidding? You're not ready. He breaks us, brings us right down. But then he doesn't leave us there. And I, I worry that maybe some of us are still there, groveling on the floor. Are you a wretched man that I am? Who will deliver me from this body of death and sin? That's Romans 7, the Apostle Paul. But he goes on, thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he goes in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on later, and that's when he says, you know, for the, for the Spirit bears testimony to my spirit that we're children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. So you see Paul's wrestling through this whole thing. I am not a great man, I am a little man. But I'm not just a little man. God is going to make me a great man. I'm greater than I ever thought I was, but I'm less than I ever thought I was too. Oh, the mystery. That's what it is to be a Christian. You're holding these things in tension with an eye on the future. Jesus demonstrates this for us. He descends to the very depths, down, down, down. And having descended to the depths, having served us to the end, Jesus then proved that this earthly, temporary kingdom that we're also inclined to think is going to last forever 
will not have the final word. Because contrary to what we've been told, the grave is not the end. On the third day, he rose. Vindicated. Triumphant. Great. Greatness personified. He held in his hands the keys of death and Hades, and he ascended to his throne where he's now seated in victory, where he intercedes for us, where he's prepared a place for all of us who will confess our sins, bow down low to the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will lift us up in due time. The joy that was set before him is complete. The victory is won. Humility has given way to glory. What does greatness look like? It looks like that. It looks like Jesus. So would you be great this morning? Do you feel that longing in your souls? Before I close, can I just say, maybe you're here, you're not a Christian. I don't want us to, a lot of what I said is ringing true this morning. And I want to say it's ringing true because it is. You, you're, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, listen, I get it. Like I, I, you know, we say it at Christmas time, it's better to give than to receive. I understand, I can appreciate the fact when somebody lays down their life for another, that that's a noble thing. My question is, why? The reason why you recognize that as true greatness is because you were made in the image of God and he's planted that reality in your heart. And so even though every voice in the world is saying exactly the opposite, even though you watch these leaders rise up with their power and and you see them in their mansions, even still you see something noble, something right, something, this is counterfeit and you know that, but then you see greatness in the kindness of a stranger. And something inside of you just testifies that that's greatness. And I'm telling you, that feeling, the the little part of you that was nodding along saying, I know that's true, I, I live in the world, I know that's true. That little voice is testifying that God's law is written on your heart. He's told you this is true and you know it. So I would say, by the grace of God, with the help of his spirit, open your eyes and see the glory of the cross, perhaps for the first time. And let's live in light of what we've seen. Brothers and sisters, stoop down and and lift people up. That's power. Jesus says, that's power. He uses his power Not to lord over others, but to come down and to bring us up with them. And so what does that look like in your life? I don't know. I look around this room, it probably looks like a hundred different things, doesn't it? You know, it probably looks like that person that you walk past on the street a hundred times, stopping, instead of walking past, literally stooping down and looking them in the eye. Because here's a person created in the image of God and having a conversation with them. Maybe it looks like coming home, after a long day of work and you're completely depleted and your eight-year-old is like, play with me, play with me. And you stoop down and, and even though you got nothing left in the tank, you give them all the energy you've got left. Maybe it looks like that, that fight that's been circling in your marriage and you know that you're right and you know that she's wrong and yet nevertheless you say, you know what, I'm going to stoop down, I'm going to serve. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this go. I don't need to be right. I don't need to win this fight. What I want is I want to serve this person. I want to help them. I want to point them to Jesus. And so that's what I'm going to do. It's going to look different for each and every one of us. Bear one another's burdens. Answer that phone call. Even though you know it's going to rob you of every last bit of energy that you have. Take over the nursery shift for that, that woman who clearly needs an opportunity to just Get out and to be fed. Give up your Saturday to help with that move. Be a listening ear for the brother who's grieving. Be willing to suffer for others. Serve those people, even those people who've betrayed you so deeply. Love your 
enemy. Because down is the way up. This is the example that Jesus has set. This is the greatness that receives the reward that matters. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I love you. We love you. And we thank you, God, for your great mercy towards us. You're so kind. God, I thank you that even though none of us deserved this, you sent your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, for for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, for dying in our place. Thank you that you sent the spirit. Oh God, I pray that, that your spirit right now would be bringing dead hearts to life, would be doing that miraculous surgery of taking out a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. God, I thank you for all of those little truths that you've hidden in the world, Lord, that point us to you. All of those little longings for another world with another set of rules, and yet it's, it's inside of us. And we can, it's like sometimes we just see through this mess and we see that glorious reality on the other side. God, I pray that, that all of those little testimonies that you've placed Lord, in creation, in our hearts, Lord, all of those things, God, that right now that would culminate and just bring someone to life. God, I pray that you would help each of us to see Jesus more clearly, to live like Jesus more truly, to love like Jesus more selflessly. God, I pray for a miraculous healing of relationships that have been unhealthy for years and years. God, I pray for a miraculous release of bitterness that has been long stored up. God, I pray for miraculous humility that would be displayed towards those who don't deserve it. God, I pray that they would know we are Christians by our love. And Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us, God, to to resolve, to uh, fix our eyes on the prize that you have for us to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. And Lord, not to settle for the things of of earth. The things of earth grow strangely dim, in fact, in the light of your glory and grace. Thank you for that. I pray that things would be growing dim right now, uh, even as we pray. God, the things we've settled for, the compromises, God, I pray that fingers would be releasing, Lord, and we'd be letting things go. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?